lot of shit on my mind this week. Ted podcast I did with Alan Soslowski for Real Man Sports, realmansports.com. I actually like weirdly people who follow me on Twitter and interact with me are sometimes like, are you still posting sports stuff? And don't even know that that exists. But I imagine most of the people who listen to the podcast do. But in case you don't, realmansports.com. I did a Survivor podcast with Soslowski. And at the end, he was asking me about social media and the state of social media. And I went on a rant about why I'm off Twitter. I touched on a lot of that last week here, so I'm not going to rehash the whole rant. You can check it out on my Noster feed. And my Noster feed is linked. I should link it to my Substack, but it's definitely linked to the Real Man Sports. My sports Noster feed is. And in there, I retweeted, reposted the rant about social media and why I am ditching Twitter except for one day a week. And I'm on Noster. Noster stands for notes and other things transmitted by Relay. And so it's just a protocol and I've gone into that before, but I bring it up because I I do think that Twitter, you know, right now is probably the last bastion with any freedom of speech. A friend of mine, because of his, not going to say who he is, but the nature of his work, he's on Facebook. It's like Facebook groups. And he was posting a video of himself just saying, you know, you might want to consider the motives of the pharmaceutical industry, you know, what their objectives are, just consider it. And just for that, uh, he got locked out of his Facebook account for 24 hours, which is hilarious. I deleted Facebook in 2018 and probably one of the best things I've ever done. Thank God I deleted it before the whole COVID disaster started. I've said this before, but I spared knowing which of my childhood friends and acquaintances would have wanted to put me in a camp for not injecting myself with something I didn't want or need. So Facebook, you know, that's, that's, that's dead. I mean, it's completely bereft of any sort of free expression. But Twitter, you know, the whole lawful but awful thing. And Linda Yaccarino policing the site. That's there too. So anyway, I have a rant on that. You can check it out on my Noster feed. I think it's on both Noster feeds actually, but the link to the Noster feed, the easiest way to get it is on the top menu of realmansports.com. All right. I just wanted to uh, put that out of the way. Uh, I bought three books recently recommended by different people. Uh, One of them is all over Noster. It's Lynn Alden's Broken Money. I just read the intro to it. It's pretty well written haven't read much of it. They're all raving about it. She's kind of the rising star in the Bitcoin and sort of macroeconomic space. And I'm a little suspicious sometimes of those people that, you know, people start to suck up to them and think they're the shit, but she seems pretty legit to me, but I'll read her book and I'll find out. The intro is promising. The other two books I bought, one of them is called Die Wise. And it's about, I think I haven't really looked into it, but a friend of mine recommended it about I guess the author had spent a lot of time with dying people and kind of had his takeaways of what's important as you're dying. So I'm going to read that. Hopefully I don't have to actually deal with the reality of that for another 50 years or so, but you never know. And then I bought a book called Alcohol Explained. by There was a guy on uh, Noster that I follow who recommended that. that I, read, I read Alcohol Explained, most of it. I didn't read the whole thing, but I read most of it. I kind of skipped around. And it is an excellent book. It's Alcohol Explained by William Porter. You know, I I know a lot about alcohol because I've drunk, I've consumed quite a bit of it since I was a teenager. And, you know, Heather's in the wine business and I'm reading this and it's stuff that you know, but it's stuff that you don't really think through. And I think through a lot of shit. And it's the kind of book that, frankly, that I would write. Like it's, it's just really observational. Like, okay, think about what's happening here. Think about what's happening there. There's some science to it. But what's really interesting about it is it's the most persuasive book I've ever read against drinking. 
I mean, normally, you know, people say it's bad for you or die and all these, you know, it's medically, this will happen. You'll get this kind of cancer, whatever. That's not really much of a deterrent. You know, you see a lot of older people drinking who are reasonably healthy. You see people dying of all sorts of things who don't drink. That's not really going to uh, sway me one way or another. But a couple of points that he makes, and it's worth reading the book in full, is that your subconscious associates the relief you get from a drink as quelling some anxiety. Everyone has sort of a different level of anxiety in their life, but everybody usually has some anxiety. And alcohol, of course, creates anxiety because the withdrawal from it makes you jangled and jittery and you don't sleep very well and you're more anxious the next day. But it even does it in real time because you you basically have your drink and it kind of calms you. It's a depressant, so it calms you. But that calming, your body reacts to it by getting more sensitized. And the way the way that works is that, say, you know, if you're drinking often at your peak, you know, you can maybe drink, you know, 10, 12 beers and seem reasonably normal if you're a big drinker. But the first time you drank, you couldn't drink 10, 12 beers and seem reasonably normal. And he was saying that Richard Burton, the actor, apparently was drinking three liters of hard booze a day. And of course, that would kill anybody who was doing that for the first time. But your body adjusts over time and compensates for the alcohol intake. And one of the ways it does that is, you know, alcohol like dulls your senses and nerves as a depressant. It, it adapts by making you hypersensitive. So it offsets sort of the dullness of the, the drug. And so you're able to function despite being under the influence of quite a bit of this drug when you start to drink a lot. And that's why you feel so hungover in part is because once the alcohol, the drug wears off, you have this like hypersensitivity that's been jacked up to combat the alcohol and the alcohol leaves your system. Now you're just really jangled and sensitive and bright light and loud sounds and you're irritable. You're just hyper, hyper sensitive. And then that sort of nervous energy has to wear off. Also that compensation takes a little bit longer to wear off. And the point is when you have a drink, it kind of relaxes you for a bit by depressing you. And then that wears off. And that sort of jangled nerve sense of sensitivity is still there. So you feel more anxious. So you have to keep it going to get that sort of level to keep the, everyone knows this, to keep the level of calmness or the buzz that you want, you got to keep drinking because it'll wear off. And that's why people end up getting wasted. And especially because the speed with which the mental wears off, the mental feeling of relaxation wears off is faster than the physical actually processes the alcohol. And it's the reason why some people have gotten DUIs the next morning, even though they are mentally hungover, but you know, not drunk at all mentally, their body still has a high blood alcohol content because the mental part has already been processed, but the physical alcohol is not out of their system. And so he basically says it's just like a cycle where you associate the drink with a sense of relief, anxiety relief, and your subconscious works by anticipating cause and effect over time that you've, you've noticed over time. So he was using the example of how if he steps on a non-moving escalator, a broken escalator, he's, he kind of makes the adjustment as though the escalator is moving, even though he knows it's not moving because all the times he's been on an escalator, there's this sort of adjustment you make because it's moving. And he would still make it even though the, he knows the escalator is not moving. And so your subconscious kind of works like that. That is the subconscious. And so it associates that feeling of relaxation with the drink, but it doesn't really associate the hangover or even from one drink where you're not going to get a real hangover. They're just ever so slight anxiety when it wears off. And so you're only sort of connecting to the relaxation. You're not connecting to the effect that it has once the relaxation's over. 
And so even though you know intellectually, well, if I keep drinking, I'm going to have a horrible hangover and it's going to be rough. Subconsciously, you still associate each drink with a sense of relaxation. And so there's a disconnect between your subconscious and what you actually know is true. And then he says, all these people who try to stop drinking, they start to think, you know, I'm going to be miserable. All these fun things that I used to do, I can't do. And then that feeling of expecting to be miserable because drinking is where all the fun's at, that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because if you think, if I don't have this one thing in my life, it's going to be super dull and boring, then you're going to be despondent over having a foreseeably dull and boring life. And so when addicts quit, they often end up going back because even though they know the damage it's doing in their life, which is why they quit in the first place, they have this just depressing sense of my life's dull and boring and there's nothing fun in it. And so they toggle between the feeling of there's never going to be anything fun in my life again. And this thing's fucking up my life, but I'm doing it anyway. And you know, the idea that needs to be sort of displaced is that your life is dull and boring if you're not boozing and partying. Uh, and that's an idea that is actually not true, but it's well entrenched. Um, and so the idea isn't to be like, I'm okay with being a dull, sober person, that like sober guy who's an alcoholic who's walking around like, yeah, I'm sober, I'm sober. And they're just fucking miserable, actually. That's not going to cut it. Those people are going to start drinking again because why the fuck wouldn't you at that point? Um, and then you destroy your life and then you stop it. You become the sober guy who's so dull and doesn't want anyone to have fun because you're anticipating a life of misery, which is itself miserable. The anticipation of being dull and boring is itself dull and boring. It's already miserable. So the, the key, he says, is to remove this, the, the belief that because you're not drinking, you're not having a good time or that there's no point in socializing or you're not going to enjoy all sorts of situations. So anyway, I felt it was a very persuasive and interesting book. And I'm actually thinking about not really drinking. I don't really think I have a problem per se. I mean, I, I don't really drink at home by myself. I don't care if I drink, but you know, I've probably blacked out 30 to 50 times when I drink, you know, I want to keep it going. I want to keep the party going. And I'm sort of a binge type of guy. You know, I won't drink two nights in a row, but I can definitely go big on a particular night. And I've been drunk many, many, many times. So I'm sort of a weird case where I don't really feel addicted to it at all, but you know, if I drink, I like to drink and I'm wondering what the, uh, whether that's really just paying off for me. I used to think about this in different ways. One of the ways I used to think about it was like compound interest. And this is more my twenties and thirties when I was going out and drinking quite a bit. I think I started drinking just because I didn't like socializing, social awkwardness, just have a few drinks, relax. You can be more of an idiot and because you're drinking. So I, I think I started drinking because of that. But, you know, in my 20s and 30s, every time going out, you're drinking and then you're hungover. And I just think about like all those days that I was hungover and just kind of doing the bare minimum, you know, sending those two emails I could barely send that I had to send or taking care of whatever particular thing I had to take care of that day at a bare minimum. And all the other time that was wasted, just being hungover and wasting time till you felt better and thinking, you know, what if I had learned something or you know, gotten some exercise or, you know, turned my attention to something. It's kind of like compound interest. Like every day that you explore something new, it can open a door to something else. And each day you go deeper into it. And, you know, maybe it's something extremely gratifying to you. Um, and that compounds on itself. I was basically the guy with the cash under his mattress losing to inflation while everyone else is earning compound interest. And so, I just started thinking about all the days that I kind of just threw away and, you know, what I would have done with the, that time. And it was um, just the way I thought about it. And that was when I drank quite a bit more than I do now. 
when I talked to Heather about it, she was like, you don't have a problem. You're fine. And I'm like, yeah, I'm fine ish. I mean, I'm not like worried about it, but when you read the book, you're like, why am I even bothering with this at all? Like, there's really no reason that I'm even doing this when you really get into it. It's funny though. He said, one of the ways, the best ways to quit is not to resist your cravings. It's to, is to not have cravings at all, not have the desire to drink at all, not to be like, oh, I really want to, but I can't. And the way to do that, he said, was to realize the full consequences of it. Not like think about all the fun you had while you drank, but the whole thing, like the embarrassing shit you said, the horrible hangover you had, the time you squandered, the time you got into an argument with somebody that was stupid. The fact that, you know, when you're drunk, you're not really in command of your emotions. And there's the idea that like when you're drunk and you get into a fight with somebody or you, you know, hit on some woman that you really shouldn't be hitting on, um, that that's your true self, that, you know, that it just your inhibitions are down. And so that's what you really want to do. And he says, that's bullshit. You know, he's like, basically when you're sober and you're an adult, you learn some emotional control. Like you don't want to hit on that woman. You're not interested in her and you don't get involved with that because it's going to be a bad choice and you're in control of that emotion, but you get drunk and you lose control of your normal emotions. It's why people get into fist fights when they're drunk. It's why people do all sorts of things. Why people, you know, a lot of people get emotional and they start crying and talking about how bad their life, you know, whatever. It's just normally you, you have a hold of yourself and you just lose it uh, because you, uh, because you're not in command of your emotions. You're, it's not the true self. It's like a lower version of you that is just very immature. But anyway, when I was quitting smoking cigarettes and I never really smoked, I would buy a pack, smoke the whole pack when I was drunk. And then the next day I wouldn't buy another pack. And then next weekend I'd smoke a whole pack when I was drunk and maybe I'd have a few left over the next day, but I never, you know, was like had to buy a pack every day. But even so I, I knew that I felt like shit a lot from it and I wanted to quit. And I remember you know, the first couple of weeks of quitting when it was, you know, you actually like really remembered what it was like to smoke. And I would just think, I really want a cigarette right now. I'm having a drink. I just finished a meal. I'd really like a cigarette. But then I think, but I'm much happier that I don't smoke, even though I want one right in this moment. Overall, I'm just so happy that my lungs are clear and I feel a lot of energy and I'm not worried about getting cancer. And I'm, and that was enough for me just not to have one. And I think he cites that as the actual attitude that people who succeed in quitting have is that they see the whole picture. They're not just narrowly focused on what they want for the second. They're like, yeah, I want this, but I don't really want it when I really understand what it is. So I just felt it was a really interesting book and it's actually making me think about not drinking. And uh, I have a lot of like crazy drunken stories and a lot of shit that I like to tell, but Maybe it's just not necessary for me. I don't know. I'm not making a promise here. I'm just saying it's really made me think about it. And it's it's a persuasive case. So the book is called uh, Alcohol Explained by William Porter. And definitely don't read it if you're uh, attached to your drinking because I think it makes a good case. A couple other things. So chrislist.substack.com, I uh, separated out two sections at the top menu. I'm starting to like take care of my sites properly. I gave everything pictures and proper captions. But I put two items in the menu at the top of chrislist.substack.com. And one of them is fiction. There's 11 of the pieces are sort of black mirror style, very short stories. Some of you have read them. I've talked about some of them on this podcast, but I think a lot of people haven't read them. So if you're into that kind of thing, sort of a black mirror, you know, thousand word black mirror, I have them linked there at the top. And then three of the posts, I would say are satire, which I think, I think they all, they, all three still hold up. 
pretty well. So I've got a fiction tab and a satire tab. And if you guys are interested in that, check it out again, chrysalis.substack.com on the top tab. Sometimes, sometimes I think I am doing this real man sports thing and I am really doing essays and stories on my Substacks. And sometimes I think I'm just like pretending to do that uh, and I'm, I'm doing it, but it's kind of a cover. It's, I'm doing a real job, but at the same time, it's a cover for my real, real job, which is I'm sort of in the battle for the mind space of ideas. I'm trying to get my ideas into the zeitgeist and to change the course of things. Like that's my real job, right? That I'm just ostensibly I'm trying to put out content that people want to read and entertain people and make people think. But my real job is like I'm a farmer and I'm putting these seeds out in the zeitgeist, planting them to grow into something bigger. And I really do feel like that's my mission, you know, just to get these ideas out there because, because I think they're important. And it's almost like I'm on the front. I, I don't really know if it's like, you know, a war. I mean, a war is one metaphor where, you know, this is a war of ideas and I'm trying to get certain ideas out there. But another one, I think the farming metaphor is good. I'm trying to get out, get rid of, there's a lot of weeds growing. The garden's overgrown and I'm trying to pull out the weeds and plant the seeds sort of. I think it's kind of a, another way of looking at it. It could be war also, but I think the farming metaphor might be better. But I keep trying to seed these ideas and spread them. And hopefully people listening, you know, it takes root in their mind and then they're kind of doing the same thing in their orbit as well. So I think that's kind of what I'm actually doing. And I had kind of an example of this. I'm writing a piece right now about how you adjust your priors, update your priors. And priors is kind of a terminology from Bayesian statistics. And I'm going to get this wrong. I don't, you know, I don't give a shit about what actually Bayesian statistics is or, you know, whether what I'm saying comports with it exactly. I'm not really interested in that. I don't give a fuck. What I'm trying to say is it reminds me of something I vaguely understand to be Bayesian in the sense that I think, and again, it doesn't really matter, that the idea is that you have a prior belief and you have sort of a probability attached. Like say your belief is Djokovic right now is the best tennis player in the world. So I say, you know, with 75% probability, that's what I think. And you're supposed to update that based on what you see happen, right? So like if the, if the US Open, he wins, which he did. Now you're like, eh, now I'm like 80% sure, 85% sure he's the best player. I don't mean the number one ranked player. I mean, you know, the most, the best player, the guy you'd expect to win against anyone else on a neutral court. If you saw him lose in the final, you might, you know, knock it down five or 10%. And so, you know, the things that you observe alter your priors, but your prior obviously is huge. If you just see a random person that you've never heard of, let's say Coco Goff, I watched play. Do I think she's the best women's tennis player in the world? Probably not. But of course, I didn't really know who she was. I didn't have a strong prior on her. I know that she was seated sixth, so she's obviously a good player. And that she won the US Open probably means there's some chance she's the best female tennis player in the world. But I would say that's more like 15 or 20% that she's the best actual player. But you know, but her winning the US Open, I might think there was almost no chance. I don't really follow women's tennis enough to have a strong view that she was the best player in the world, but now it would be upped by a significant amount. And so that's how, to me, a functioning brain works, right? You have your belief. You think there's some chance that, you know, some probability that it's correct, some probability that's incorrect. And then you update, you kind of modify the odds as, 
information, more information comes in. Okay. So I, I kind of have the same methodology when it comes to my beliefs about, you know, government and politics and things like that. And, you know, I grew up being pretty jaded growing up in New York city and the greed is good. 19, 1980s. I didn't think our parents' generation was very ethical or wise, especially I saw how fucked up my friend's parents were. My parents, like there was nothing like they weren't split in the atom. They weren't super wise. And so that was just my attitude was like, all the shit's bullshit. But generally, you know, you believe that when you went to the doctor, the doctor could cure you if you had an ailment or, you know, the dentist, you know, wasn't putting poisonous mercury in your fillings. They would never do something like that. Um, you know, that basically like all the shit that you thought was undergirding society was on the level more or less with some corruption thrown in. There was unfair shit. Obviously, people were fuck ups. But in general, society, the Supreme Court, the the government was corrupt, but like it wasn't like psychopathic. You know, I think that was sort of you, know, you just kind of believe in shit. And then sort of a big red pill moment was the Iraq war where they alleged there were WMDs and we went in, we killed a million innocent people. We just murdered them and under false pretenses, both parties voted for it almost unanimously. And so my priors got fucked up from that. It was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like I, I knew our government was a little corrupt, but I didn't think they would kill a million people for nothing, for no reason. And so that really just, you know, and, and when you have a strong prior, and I think it's subconscious, a lot of this stuff, like, even though I was jaded, I was like, yeah, I mean, shit's not that crazy. If someone said yeah, they're actual, literally psychopaths, they will murder a million people for, for political advantage or because it's socially and professionally convenient, sort of the banality of evil. I would have said, come on, man, that's exact. That's That's paranoid. That's, you know, I wouldn't say conspiracy theory that back then, because that wasn't a thing, but I'd say that's just really paranoid. But then the Iraq war really kind of opened my eyes and really fucked up my priors. And now I'm like, I don't know what, but then I thought, okay, that's the Bush administration. That's the Republicans. They're evil. But thank God Obama got elected. Right. And then when he started drone murdering all these people and then not even trying to pass universal health care. And what's funny about that is I'm totally against universal health care. After COVID, I do not want <laughs> the government in charge of healthcare in any way. But at the time I was for universal healthcare and he didn't even really try to get it passed, even though they had majorities in the Senate house and obviously the presidency when he first got elected. And then I started to be like, holy fuck, it's not just the Republicans. It's everybody. So it's a whole thing. It's the uniparty. And I started to, things started, you know, then I really was red pilled. So that wasn't as strong of a, I mean, I was very disappointed in Obama because I fell for it, but I, I wasn't as strong of a red pilling as the Iraq war, but it was, it was still strong. But then, you know, when COVID hit, I thought, okay, these are fucked up. They'll kill people. But I didn't think they would attack their own society in that way to shut it down, to destroy everyone's civil liberties in the West for no reason. Again, just like there were no WMDs, none of that lockdown shit had any beneficial effect. It had tons of negative effects. It didn't stop the spread. They lied about the vaccine. I mean, but, you know, I never, the pharmaceutical companies, I didn't really need to be that red pilled on. I mean, a lot of people I don't understand. Well, I do understand. I'm going to get into that. I, I don't understand rationally how they could see big pharma, which they know is evil, which they know has been fined for billions of dollars for falsifying data for outright fraud. And then think, Oh, these guys are the good guys. Suddenly. Like I don't, I didn't at least rationally, I don't know how a person with a functioning brain could think that, but 
anyway, I, I was, I believe the COVID stuff because I didn't think they would bluff all in, you know, it was sort of the grand theft auto thing that they would actually drive the car on the sidewalk and start hitting pedestrians unless there was a real reason. And now I realize there was no reason. Like it was literally, they don't give a fuck. They are completely smash and grab grand theft auto. They know they only got one go at this, but they're just keep going. And that was a huge, huge, that was like sort of the final red pill. There's probably going to be more red pills, but that just seems like as bad as it gets. Like they're not just psychopathic toward foreigners. They, they will attack their own populations. They will run roughshod over your rights against the constitution that they swore to uphold. They have no ethics. There's no line. There's no code whatsoever. I mean, there is absolutely nothing. Science doesn't mean anything to them. They'll pervert the, the word science and make it seem like a religion or a cult they don't care at all about the actual scientific method or, or formulating any kind of coherent view whatsoever. They, they are content to gaslight and lie and, and abuse people to the greatest extent they can get away with. And even if they can't get away with it, that was sort of what blew my mind, even though people know and they know people know, and yet they're still doing it. So it's just an example. Like I want people to think about the Bayesian way of looking at things, which we do for fantasy sports, we do for regular beliefs about what's true in the world. And yet for God knows what reason, well, actually we do know what reason, but for God knows what rational reason, people just abandon the sense of, oh, they lied. They completely lied about the lab leak origin. They just covered it up and fucking lied to you. And then they lied and said the vaccine would stop the spread, even though they knew it was never tested for. And they knew early on that there was no evidence of it. And yet they just lied to your face about it just to get you to take it, just to be able to pressure you to take it and to justify their mandates, which enrich Pfizer and the other pharmaceutical companies. They just fucking lied to your face. And people know they lied to their face and they're still like, oh, I still think they did their best. Or what are they saying now? Maybe I should get a booster. You know, and I'm like, what happened to the prior that you had, which is believe the government, they're often flawed, there's some corruption, but in general, they're doing the best they can. That was your prior. Okay, fair. I mean, it's fucking ridiculous after Iraq, but okay, just the Republicans are bad. Okay, fine. That's your prior. But after what happened, how could you not adjust your prior? Well, the answer we know is because there are incentives. Right? You, you, your friends haven't adjusted their prior, your social and professional circles are rewarding people for keeping that prior intact, even though the evidence says you've got to fucking change this. Like this is to be a fucking idiot who doesn't update his priors is what is now incentivized. That's why you have people spouting absolute nonsense and saying things like, yeah, I'm just so glad the vaccine helped us get out of the pandemic. How the fuck did the vaccine help us get out of the pandemic if it didn't stop the spread? People can't answer that question. I, I there's people I know, I won't name them, who you'll talk to them and be like, yeah, you know, um, Someone got caught COVID at the wedding, but, you know, thankfully, you know, some of us were vaccinated, but every vaccinated person, you know, has fucking had COVID three times. So what are you fucking talking about? It doesn't compute. Their brain just doesn't say, oh, this prior that the vaccine would stop the spread. That's been completely falsified. You need to update it. And the fact that they lied to you, why do you still trust them? Because it's not just the incentives. It's not just the social and professional incentives. It's actually emotional, personal incentives. Whereas I personally still get jarred by some of the red pilling, like the COVID thing, or when I read something insane, like the like this is just the other day, the CDC and the FDA is encouraging children as young as six months to five years to get a booster, to get another COVID shot. 
And that's jarring to me, even though I'm so red pilled that I realize these fuckers don't give a shit about the health of your children. They will actively harm your children to justify what they've done and to keep the money flowing to Pfizer. And, you know, once you're pot committed, you may as well be all in. They, they've already cast their lot with Pfizer. Pfizer and its money has to protect them. They can't say no now and go against them now unless they're willing to testify under immunity. So they're green lighting this stuff. But that still jars me that in 2023, September of 23, there's colleges still mandating the shot, that there's still these agencies of the government recommending something that doesn't stop the spread, isn't needed for children, and has horrific side effects. This is, to me, still jarring. And why? Because emotionally, even though I know intellectually better, I am still attached to the idea that the FDA and CDC are not totally run by psychopaths. I, I mean, we can joke and say, ha look at those psychopaths. But actually, I mean, literally, these people are fucking psychopaths. They have, and, it, and it's in a banality of evil type of psychopath. They're not going with a, an ax and chopping up their families. These people in the FDA, they'll talk about how much they love a particular red wine or how much they love to go out for nature hikes. You know, this is the banality of evil. These are just dull, regular, boring losers. They're not evil masterminds, and yet they are psychopathic as an entity, as an institution, willing to green light stuff because of what they're professionally incentivized to do. And it is just really in my emotional self-interest, narrow self-interest, not to believe that they are that fucking evil because it is scary. It is scary. And it also makes you paranoid about everything that's been green lighted in the food supply and the medical supplies and the pharmaceuticals and the chemicals and the the toiletries you use, everything, right? It, 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 it is not comforting to be acutely aware of the psychopathic nature of these institutions. So even I get jarred when I read them recommending that stuff to six-month-olds, even though I know. So I understand the mechanism by which these people can be lied to, to their fucking face, and still, like morons, still trust the people that lie to their face. It's a Stockholm syndrome. Why does Stockholm syndrome happen where you start to you know, love and, and revere your, your captors? Because it's probably a defense mechanism. Because if you don't, you're going to fucking flip. And I think people are just in this defense mechanism of this normal Bayesian inference that you would make. Like, I thought Djokovic was the best player in the world, but he just lost 6-0, to this unranked scrub who then got destroyed by in the second round. Hmm, maybe Djokovic has lost it. Maybe he's over the hill now. You must update your priors. And the more strongly you hold your prior, the more a falsification will impact it. For instance, if I'm if I look at a tennis prospect who's 18, I think, oh, this guy's got talent. I think he could be really good one day. And he loses to a qualifier, even plays terribly. It's not going to mess up your prior that much because you're like, oh, he's just a prospect. Like he had a bad game or he's not mentally there yet. Maybe he could still be a great player. But if it's Djokovic loses to some scrub and then that scrub gets beat, it's going to really <laughs> invalidate that prior. You're going to say, well, I used to think it was 70% that he's the best player in the world. Maybe it's 20%. Maybe he's slipping. Maybe Alcaraz is the best player. So, you know, you're, you're going to change your priors more. So if you're really invested in, well, everything's mostly on the level, there's a little corruption, there's some incompetence in the government, but they did the best they could. This should fucking upend it completely. They lied to you. They are recommending these shots that are barely tested, not even tested on people. I think the latest round, I don't even know if it's up with the current variant and they're, rec they're recommending them to six months old don't need them healthy six month old. So this should really upend your priors completely, but it's not because emotionally you don't want to know. You don't fucking want to know. 
And I'm saying to people, and I'm, stop, I'm tired of playing defense. I'm here to identify the mechanisms by which people are deluded and to start to dig them out of the ground, pull out that weed, to undercut that mental mechanism of how that psychological mechanism by which the propaganda has gotten in and taken root and attached itself to you know, an emotional need for comfort. And I want to uproot that shit, just like that alcohol book that I read started uprooting some of the assumptions I had and the associations I had with drinking. I want to try to uproot people's associations with the CDC and the FDA and the good people in the government. Um, I want to uproot that entire understanding. I want to carve it out. And I'm, I'm, I, I think like, Unfortunately, because there was so much propaganda and I felt a bit isolated before, um, I was mostly playing defense. I was mostly saying things like, well, I believe in civil liberties and I don't think people should be forced to take medicine. And all of that was true and it was legitimate, but it was too much playing defense. What I'm saying is wake the fuck up. There is no excuse. Emotional comfort is not a fucking excuse for not doing your basic Bayesian epistemological due diligence, right? Like you have a fucking duty as an adult human being to update your fucking priors. If you think something and then it's falsified, you cannot fucking hold on to that same thing even after it's been falsified. I trust these people. They just fucking lied. It's got to be updated. You have no excuse. And I'm, I'm really trying to uproot these mechanisms. Stop fucking hiding from the emotional discomfort that you're going to have and which I suffer plenty of being like, holy fuck, these people are not acting in my interest. And most of the shit I believe just is not true. And some of the shit I believe now is probably fucking not true. And I'm going to have more emotional discomfort uh, when this is upended. So that's kind of what I'm doing. And that's just really the point I want to make. I'm just fucking tired of it. I'm tired of, you know, you people have a fucking duty, you know, like you cannot just be so lazy that you're seeing things that don't add up and you're just, oh, I don't know. I'm not really sure. I'll just keep believing what I'm believing. No, I don't want to look here. I don't, nothing to see here. You have a fucking duty as an adult, okay? It's not just me. It's not just people listening to this podcast. It's people have a fucking duty. You are, you are derelict if you're not at least updating your priors. I'm not going to tell you what to do about it. You'll figure out what to do on your own. I don't know exactly what to do. You know, I have to figure out what to do also. But just fucking do the basic epistemological due diligence, your fucking job as a human being. Make the efforts to sense make for yourself. These fucking experts lied to you. Stop being a total pussy and outsourcing to them after they lied to your fucking face. I just, there's no excuse for that. Not in 2023. I, I'm losing sympathy for people who are just fucking refusing to use the mental muscle to get up and fucking do the due diligence to realize this is bullshit. How do I update my prior? It would be the same thing as somebody who, you know, is just not willing to contribute in any way. Imagine having a spouse or a partner who didn't even lift a finger to do the dishes or the laundry or help you take care of the kid or anything, contribute financially didn't lift a fucking finger, right? You're just, they're just derelict in their duty as a human being. Well, I'm saying if you don't update your priors, you're just being derelict in your fucking duty. You're just not participating on the planet as a human being if you don't update your priors. You're just simply holding on for emotional comfort, like a drug addict. That's not something that I will respect. You can have empathy for people, blah, blah, blah. Fine, have as much empathy as you fucking want. But the thing not to do is to enable it. I'm not going to enable this shit. You know, you can believe whatever the fuck you want, 
but I'm not going to respect it. I'm sorry. I'm just done respecting it. You must update your priors. You don't have to come to the same conclusion that I am doing, but when someone lies to your fucking face, you must give up some trust. If you're a rational person, update your motherfucking priors. And I'm not going on the defense. I'm going on the offense. Okay. I mean, I'm just sick of it. I won't tell anyone what to do. I don't think it's up to me to tell people what to do because doing is a complex thing. It's, it's each person has to take in the totality of the circumstances and act accordingly. But anyway, okay. So that's, that's one thing. And then I had this, this other piece that I was working on. I don't know if I'll publish it. It's, 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 uh, it was based on last week. So I said, you know, I'm like disappointed in people who just complied and, you know, I need to go travel for my ski trip in France. Okay. I'll just take the injection. I'll, I'll have medicine that I don't want at the government's command because I need to, I don't want to miss out on my ski trip. And I was disappointed in those people, but then I kind of turned it on myself and I was like, yeah, but you know, I'm paying taxes scrupulously, like to the letter of the law that I don't believe in that. I, that I don't want my money going to Ukraine or to Pfizer. And I'm, someone could say someone who's in jail for gotten their af- assets confiscated for tax evasion is like, you see, you pussy, you, you're contributing to everybody paying taxes. If nobody paid taxes, then they couldn't enforce it. So you're the, you know, you're the problem. And I thought that's fair. That's fair because I am paying taxes. I don't want to martyr myself and my family. It's not about missing a ski trip, but I don't want to martyr myself and my family to, you know, be, uh, to be righteous in this case. I don't, I don't think it's a good deal. It's a good, good idea. And so that's something's why I didn't think it was a good idea to, uh, not take the shot because, you know, I didn't want to get fired from my job. I, I can understand it. If somebody was really, you know, they didn't know where the next paycheck was going to come from. They didn't know where the rent was going to come from. That is a very different situation than just, you know, hey, I want to travel on a ski trip. So, and I can't say for sure that I would have not taken it in that situation because I wasn't in that situation. So um, I really can't, that, I'm, I'm in no position to judge those people, but I'm just talking about the ski trip thing. Of course, I wouldn't fucking do that. I didn't do that. You know, I wasn't going to do that. I'd rather just not travel. But the point is that, you know, you can come at me with the tax thing and say, I say, yeah, well, guilty is charged. But I made an analogy and I'm not, not sure this is going to fly, but I'm going to try it, which is that you're in a trench defending the town that's behind you. And the t- in the town is your wife and kids and everybody's wife and kids. And the enemy is shooting at you and you're shooting at them. And you got to hold the fucking line. You do not want the enemy to breach the the line and then go to the town and do God knows what with your family and your kids. And there's people in the trench fighting alongside you, but there's a lot of other people and you hear whispers saying, what are you doing? Just let them in They're They're not going to do anything. They're just going to uh, make things more efficient, more environmentally friendly. They're, they're not going to actually do anything bad if we let them in. You know, they're just going to make sure that we don't overconsume and make sure that we're more responsible as a society. And then you have, but then you have other people who are leaping out of the trench, machine gun in hand, and you know, trying to charge and kill everybody in the other trench and advance and get them off your land entirely. And a lot of those people that get up out of the trench get captured or killed, most of them, in fact. And my analogy, I guess, is sort of like when I grew up, my parents were paying taxes and my parents' parents were paying taxes and I've been paying taxes. And so you know, that is something that even though if I look at it closely, like those taxes aren't really going to schools and things that I would respect and accept. Those taxes are being maldistributed to, to causes that I detest. I'd rather see the money lit on fire, to be honest. I mean, this is just enriching the wrong people and causing wars. And I don't want any part of that. It, but all of the, the idea of paying taxes is something we lived with. And I felt like 
my life to date has been, at least to me, I've had freedom. I've been able to choose what I want to do for work. I've been able to choose how to spend my time despite the taxes, even though you know a lot of that is unjust. And so that's not to say that those people aren't correct who are leaping out of the trench. It's just that would be taking back territory that when I was born, we didn't have, right? It's sort of like the, the lines are drawn where the lines are drawn. And maybe originally you had more land, but we're here. And so I'm saying you got to hold the line here because if you seed the baseline into the town, then your kid's baseline is not just going to be taxes. It's going to be taxes, totalitarianism, biomedical tyranny, where they can eject you with whatever 15 minute cities, all the fucking shit that's been conspiracy theories that turn out to be true a couple years later. So while I admire people who want to jump out of the trench and push back even farther and martyr themselves personally, I think the duty is to hold the line. So that may be kind of a incoherent sort of flabby position, you know, not be a hero, but not capitulate, just hold the motherfucking line and make sure that whatever freedom we had growing up, we don't leave it worse. You know, if, if in holding the line here, I think maybe if they overstep, they can lose territory that happens. Uh, one country overextends itself and not only doesn't succeed in overextending, but they actually lose ground. We start establishing the civil liberties and then, you know, we start pushing back incrementally more and more because wait a second, this is not legal and that's not legal. And why were we doing this for five years? That's not legal either. Once the tide turns, once we realize how aggressive the enemy is, how much they've overstepped. I think that's maybe the way to do it rather than jumping out of the trench and martyring yourself and having the IRS fucking seize all your assets. That's just my opinion. Um, and maybe people think that that attitude is similar to, no, just take the shot. But I don't think the shot's reversible. You know, Once you've taken that mRNA injection, God knows what the fuck is in there. Um, you can't just untake it, right? Whereas if you paid your taxes, maybe you can't get that money back, but it's just money. You're not injecting something into your bloodstream. So I'm not unsympathetic to somebody who would criticize me, but I, but I think ultimately hold the fucking line where it is now at a minimum. You know, if you want to go crazy, go ahead, but I'm not doing that. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend that anybody do that, but hold the line where it is. I think, you know, this is something that cannot be breached. The Nuremberg Code the Fourth Amendment, the U.S. Constitution, civil liberties, these things should not be, this line should not be crossed. And then once that's established and the, peop the people who are punished for trying to cross those lines are duly punished, we can look into, okay, and what else? Where else did they cross the line? What else did they do that wasn't right? So anyway, that's about all I got to say today. Till next time.